I hope, I hope my mother could hear that. So, I don't know what to say after this uh, introduction. Um, Shabbat Shalom, everyone. It's such an honor and pleasure to be here with you. And, and with all the madness that's going on in our world right now, both because of natural disaster, political disasters, you name it, um, I feel so protected and warm here. And, uh, and I want to share with you that um, Rabbi Singer um, has been for the last year since we had the privilege to spend a week um, in the refugee camp in Greece, also with Rabbi Bennett is here. Uh, Rabbi Singer has been one of my most inspiring leaders, and I'm so honored to be here with you. So thank you. So just um, to share with you a little bit about my background and my story. So I grew up in Israel in a small, beautiful, quiet community near Tzfat. It's a small moshav. And the only thing that you hear about this place in the news is that it's the rainiest place in Israel. Now, we all know that Israel doesn't have a lot of rain, so that doesn't say too much, but we're proud to be the rainiest place in Israel. And, and for me, all, all these disasters that we hear about was just news, as it is for most of you. Um, and after my IDF service, in fact, before my IDF service, I, I was volunteering with Bedouin, juvenile in the south, in the Negev part of Israel. And I think for me it was the first time that my bubble burst. And that, that, that's a place where I really developed my passion, not just for service, but also to work with other communities and, and build bridges. So I'm going to start by sharing with you a lot of information about different disasters. And I know that for all of us, myself including, the last two months has been really, really overwhelming. But there's good part to it, so keep, bear with me, because there is hope there. So after my IDF service, I went, I did what every Israeli almost doing, I went to India. And um, I spent six months in India, fell in love with the country and its people, and from India I continued to Nepal. And in Nepal I really felt in love that I actually ended up staying three years. And I learned the most useful language in the world, Nepalese. Um, I didn't think it would be useful, but it actually proved to be really useful when I went there again after the earthquake, exactly, in 2015. Um, after three years in Nepal, working with street children and also working with the Israeli embassy in Nepal, I decided that I finally can go back to Israel and start my life. But then in March 2011, a terrible, terrible disaster happened in Japan. And I was offered by the person uh, who was the head of Israel at that time to lead a, a relief mission for two weeks in Japan. So, you know, I thought to myself, I always loved sushi. Why not, you know? Radiated sushi. No, but um, I, so I went, I went, we have to, you know, the humor will go with us tonight. That's our way to cope with this. So, um, went to Japan. These two weeks turned into a little bit more than three years. I learned a language that's a bit more useful, Japanese. And uh, we work there with a project that still continue, even though I left, still continue to provide trauma counseling for children in Japan. And then these disasters just started to come one after the other. In 2013, I found myself in the Philippines responding to the typhoon. In 2014, in probably one of the biggest disasters that I'm sure 
you all remember, it was a world panic. I found myself in Sierra Leone during the Ebola outbreak. And I, was, I arrived to Sierra Leone the moment the first Ebola patient arrived here in the States. And, you know, people ask me, weren't you scared? The truth is, I was terrified. I was terrified, and I didn't leave my hotel for two days. I wouldn't, you know, we weren't allowed to shake hands with anyone. And we worked in the Ebola. I ended up staying in Sierra Leone for about eight months. And when finally things were under control in the Ebola, and I felt, okay, I can get some time off, April 2015, the earthquake in Nepal. I found myself in less than 20, sorry, in less than 36 hours in Kathmandu. Um, there was a big problem because right after I landed, there was a second earthquake. So my team of search and rescue, the best search and rescue team in Israel, couldn't make it to Nepal because the airport was shut down. And they could only arrive in the morning of the fourth day. And after a very long operation that unfortunately I don't have the time to share the whole story, we were able to find the last survivor of the earthquake, a lady who was buried under the rubbles for six days. And we found her after we pulled out 21 dead bodies. And from this, after a few months when the situation in Nepal was sort of, again, under control, from the summer of 2015 until now, I spend a lot of my time, and our organization is focused a lot of it, its efforts with the Syrian refugees in Greece, in Germany, and we even have a team, an Israeli team, that's going to Iraq to work not just with the Syrian refugees, but with the Yazidi refugees who suffered a genocide from ISIS. So that, that's, you know, that, what, that was the last disaster, the last big disaster, up until two months ago. And then two months ago, things have really turned upside down in the world. And, and it started in late August. We all heard about the flooding in Houston. And, you know, we didn't know, we didn't think, we're Israel, this is the U.S., what support do they need from us? But we spoke to the Jewish community in Houston that we have, you know, one of some of our biggest supporters there, and they said it was epic. Hurricane Harvey literally flooded the whole city and the community suffered so much. So, and, and they compared it to Katrina. So we decided to send a team from Israel to work together with the Jewish community in Houston. Um, and then a week after, another hurricane. This, this time that was Hurricane Irma that devastated the Caribbean and Florida. And so we again got in touch with the Jewish community and with other partners that we're working with and we sent a team to Florida to the Keys to help with the debris removal. A week after, an earthquake in Mexico and we found ourselves in Mexico with another team of Israeli Mexicans, doctors, nurses, and psychotherapists. The following week, the same hurricane, that, sorry, another hurricane, Hurricane Maria, devastated Puerto Rico. So we sent a team of Israeli and Jewish Spanish speakers to Puerto Rico. And all these teams that I was sharing with you are still there on the ground. We don't hear about it in the news because we only hear about it in the first phase, but the real work starts after, starts after the media is gone. And then a week after, another request we received from a Jewish lady who owned a hotel in the island of Dominica, in the Caribbean, 
a small, beautiful island of 70,000 people that was completely destroyed by the same Hurricane Maria. And she really requested us to go and help. So we actually took a team that was in Haiti because we've been working in Haiti since the earthquake and we, we, um, we sent them there. And I thought that's it, you know, that has been unbelievable and I thought that's it, but no. So I was actually, I actually came here to the Bay Area two weeks ago for some meetings and presentation and like events like this beautiful Shabbat tonight. And I had four days in between these events that I planned to visit our team in Mexico. I had a flight to Mexico last, not last, the week before on Tuesday. And I was actually about to leave to Mexico when we heard about the fires in Sonoma. We didn't know what it would look like. We didn't know if we could really help. So I decided to go up there. I didn't even change my flight. And when I went there, the first place I went to, I, I got in touch with Rabbi Kramer at Congregation Shomrei Torah. And, and um, when I arrived there, we did also a tour in the, you know, in the area, and we realized the Jewish community and the non-Jewish community suffered so much in, in a way that we never imagined we would have to respond in California. So I canceled my flight to Mexico, and we brought our team from the peninsula, we have an office in Palo Alto, up to Sonoma. And, you know, again, I thought, what could we help? It's California. People are not starving for food. People were finding housing uh, with friends or with families. So we realized that the best thing that we could do is two things. One is to help the children whose schools were closed. So together with the incredible rabbis, and with a lot of friends, including volunteers from Emmanuel and other congregations, we set up this children camp, this day camp for children. It was originally made just to be a camp for the Jewish community, but in the last three or four days, we've seen more than 120 children coming, and about half of them are not from the Jewish community. So we set up a day camp, a place for the children to play. We turned this beautiful congregation there in Santa Rosa into a day camp. They couldn't play outside because of the smoke. And, and we know that the best way for children to cope when something like that is happening is to play it out, to release their stress. And, and we've been doing the same work with children in refugee camps in Africa, in the tsunami in Japan, in Syrian refugee camps, and in Santa Rosa. Children are children. And in a way, they're much more healthy than us adults. And we realize that the other thing that's very important is the long-term emotional support. So I thought to myself, I don't have, I have therapists in Israel. How could I, I need some therapists here from the Bay Area. So one of my colleagues is an Arab-Israeli therapist living here in Berkeley and teaching in Berkeley who worked with us before with the Syrian refugees. Her name is Nivin. She's an Arab-Israeli originally from Ramla. And I gave her a call. And in a few hours, we found ourselves both her and me, in Santa Rosa with our Bay Area team, and she started to provide psychosocial support. When we went there, we saw that the rabbis, the amazing rabbis who, you know, lost one congregant, and many of their congregants lost their home, they needed emotional support. So think about it. This Arab-Israeli therapist ended up providing emotional support for Jewish rabbis here in California. So 
for me, it's one of those times that I tell myself these disaster and tragedies, we all pray and we all wish we'd never had to go through them. But when they do happen, it brings to us such miracles and such incredible opportunities to build bridges. And, that, and that's what I want to talk to you tonight, how these terrible tragedies are also opportunities for bridges. And if we go back to the Syrian refugees, we had a medical team on the shore in Lesbos when five to 7,000 refugees were arriving every day. And every time a boat came, we would get a message on WhatsApp that I'm sure you're all familiar with, um, that a boat was coming, this amount of refugees, elderly, children, etc. One day we got a message that a boat capsized, a boat full of Syrian refugees capsized just before it reached the shore. They sent us the location and we weren't so far, so we rushed there and we were able to pull everyone out. Luckily that day no one drowned. And, and I, I was holding, I was carrying this very cute two years old Syrian baby and, and she was literally shivering and shaking in my hands and, and suffering from severe hypothermia. Now, I'm not a doctor, but luckily we had a team of Israeli, Jewish, and Arab doctors and nurses, really the top doctors in the country, on the beach, and they could also speak the language of the refugees, which was a big advantage. And they treated her, and after a few hours, she was okay. Her father, he wasn't injured, he wasn't drowning, and he was okay, but he was shocked. So he was standing next to us throughout the situation, and he couldn't say a word. When he finally opened his mouth, he spoke fluent English, really fluent. And, and he, told, he said something that I always quote. He said, my worst enemies became my biggest supporters. And the people who are supposed to protect me back home in Syria are chasing me away. And, you know, of course, he wasn't as dramatic as me. He just said it, you know. And, um, and, and, and his name was Feras. He was an engineer from Damascus, a very educated guy. And we became friends on Facebook, of course, because that's what you do. You become friends on Facebook. And then he continued with his family to Sweden. That was his final destination. And a few months later, um, I'm sure you all remember the terrible wildfires in Israel. Just last year, there was these wildfires in Haifa and all over the northern part of Israel. And actually, one of the fires was very close to my home that I'm sure you can identify with. Um, and um, I wasn't in Israel at that time. I was somewhere, I don't know, in one of these projects. And, um, and I got a message from him, from these Syrian refugees. He asked if everything was okay. And, you know, I thought he was just being polite. So I said, yes, thank you. Um, actually, it's not so good. And he said, I want to help. And again, I still thought he was probably, you know, just being nice. And I said, oh, thank you. I, I really appreciate it. But again, I didn't think he was serious. He said, no, no, I'm serious. We have a team of five Syrian refugees that you pulled out of the water. And we want to come to Israel to help. And we, we actually were about to book our flight. But there's no direct flight from Sweden. So let us know where is the best way to go. And I, you know, I thought to myself, I don't know if they'll give him the visa to Israel, but, and, and, and thank God the, the situation after a few hours was under control, so he didn't have to come to help us in Israel. But to me, it was the best stamp of approval that we're not just saving lives, we're actually building bridges and we're changing people's perspective. 
And, and we've seen it in so many disasters. You know, in Houston, one of, the, one of my best friends, um, he's a Yazidi refugee living here in the U.S. And just to remind all of us, the Yazidis are a religious minority. They're nor Muslim nor Christian. And in August 2014, they really suffered a genocide from ISIS. In one day, ISIS killed 6,000 Yazidis and sexually enslaved and tortured 5,500 girls above the age of six. The U.S. accepted very few Yazidis, very, very few. And the largest community in the U.S. is in Lincoln, Nebraska. Very random. The second largest community is in Houston, Texas. So I thought to myself when I heard about Harvey, before actually, to be honest, before I thought about the Jewish community, I thought about the Yazidis. I said, oh my God, these people suffered the worst a person could think of, and now this hurricane. So I gave him a call, and he said, his name is Haider, and he said, well, actually, we're good, we're fine, because our houses was, you know, on a higher ground, but we want to help you guys. I said, why do you mean you want to help us? We want to help the Jewish community. You helped us. In Iraq, you helped us in Greece, you helped us in Germany, and, and we want to help you now to, you know, to deal with, with this crisis because he knew the Jewish community was badly affected. Few hours later, Haider was leading a team of seven Yazidi refugees living in the U.S., and they came to the Jewish community to volunteer with our team from Israel and to help the cleaning efforts after the hurricane. Again, incredible breach. Last story to share with you for tonight is from Germany. In Germany, we've been working, we all heard that Germany accepted the highest number of refugees uh, outside the Middle East, 1.1 million refugees. And we can criticize this decision or we can respect this decision, it doesn't matter, they are already there. And we started to work in Germany um, about two years ago and, and, and we went there, you know, again, we thought, Germany, the third largest economy, what support do they need from us? But we realized that they really don't have enough Arabic speakers, and we have a lot of Arabic speakers, therapists and doctors. And also, in Germany and in Europe, we're worried about anti-Semitism and about radicalism, and we think that the more Israelis and Jews get involved in this humanitarian crisis, the higher chance we have to reduce anti-Semitism and radicalism. So we started working in Germany and it was a big thing for the Germans because think about it, Israelis, Jews and Arabs are coming to help the Germans help Syrian and Muslim refugees 70 years after the Holocaust. You know, you couldn't write a better script. But, um, so it was a big thing in the German media and after there was a big article published, I got a call from someone and he didn't sound so young. So I asked him, how old is he? He said, my name is Gerard Bader, and I'm an 82-year-old Holocaust survivor from Germany, from Berlin. And he said, I saw what you're doing with the refugees, and we focused a lot of our efforts with unaccompanied minors, because out of the 1.1 million refugees, there are 60,000 unaccompanied minors in Germany. 60,000. So he said, I was an unaccompanied minor myself after the Holocaust. I lost all my family. And I know what these children are going through. Of course, he didn't compare the Holocaust to the war in Syria, but he said, I can help them get better. I can help them integrate. I can help them move forward. 
and, and I want to help. So, so we said, great, but, but what do you want to do? I said, I want to teach them history. They need to know about our history because it's not part of the curriculum in Syria, unfortunately. So I said, okay, great, but you have to go for a training because we're not just taking random volunteers on, on our missions. So this guy came and he went for an intensive training from our social worker who's 50 years younger than him. And since then, he's been volunteering in the refugee shelter in Berlin twice a week. He has to take a train from one side of Berlin to the other to help the refugees. And, and one of the most incredible situations that I've been to in the last year was a time when he took a group of unaccompanied minors from Syria to the Holocaust Museum in Berlin. It was the first time these refugees heard about the Holocaust. And, and, and we were all in tears. The refugees were in tears. This guy were in tears. We were all in tears. We couldn't stop crying. And we couldn't stop thinking what a terrible tragedy, but what an incredible opportunity to build bridges and to change people's perspective. Thank you. Toda.